Welcome to the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. I'm delighted to have with me today WRI's Global Director for Water, Betsy Otto. Betsy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lawrence. It's lovely to be here. Our topic today is something that our president and CEO, Andrew Steer, has called the biggest crisis that no one is talking about, the crisis of water. We're going to spend a little time on how serious the crisis is. Uh, Betsy, you lead a team that has the world's best tool for measuring water risk, Aqueduct. We'll hear a little bit about Aqueduct. But then we're going to pivot to solutions because uh, I think a lot of people feel the world is in pretty dire straits now. Water is one of those things we could actually solve. That's right. That's right. Start out with the problem. No, actually, I want to start out with you. How did you get interested in water? How did you come to be here, to be one of the world's preeminent water experts? So I grew up on the water. I grew up around the Great Lakes. I'm from the Midwest of the U.S. And it's when you live in the Great Lakes region, it's always close to your consciousness to think about surface water. Great Lakes are 20% of the world's surface fresh water. Uh, and it's just part of the culture, right? Um, I actually have a business background but I found that I was really interested in doing environmental work. And I started working for a small nonprofit in Chicago after I left the business world. I was doing uh, consulting, management consulting. Worked for a small nonprofit in Chicago that was creating a new greenway plan, something that nobody had heard about back in the day. And that was actually, as we quickly realized, built around the region's rivers. Those were the connective systems, if you will, the arteries that everybody could sort of understand needed to be protected. Uh, and that became the, the way that we organized a green space plan. Uh, and it was extremely effective. And that really got me excited about working on water issues. And so I took off from there. Now a lot of your work is focused on the developing world. And there often the challenges are bigger, the populations are larger, the stresses are greater. What was the pivot that got you involved in development? Well, I, I love doing uh, domestic policy work. I, I lobbied on the Hill for many years. I worked on you know, regulatory regimes and so on to protect clean water. But I had the opportunity to go to a fellowship at Harvard, the Loeb Fellowship, uh, to think about just the nature of the built environment and the natural world. And I started realizing that, first of all, there's a very big world out there, and there are a whole set of other questions and issues that those countries are dealing with. And there's some really interesting solutions that are coming from those countries as well, or could be. And so that got me excited about it. Um, I'd known WRI's work for many years, and I had an opportunity to come work here. Um, I want to turn now to risk. You recently re released you're going to correct me. Global water update. What did you call all these very frightening numbers you put out into the wild? Oh, uh, you mean our Aqueduct 3.0 yes. update? Yes. Well, we so in early August, we released uh, an updated version of our Aqueduct Global Water Risk Mapping Tool that's um, maybe known to some folks who are going to be listening to this. Um, it's really, we're very excited about it because it's a really step change improvement in the kind of information we can bring together on a totally open source public platform. Uh, it's already being used very extensively by companies actually around the world, also by investors to try to understand where there are water related challenges that could provide, that could be risks to business operations, for example, or financial investments. But it's also being used a lot by uh, governments. We're starting to see more and more of that by civil society organizations and so on. And so in early August, we released the new version of the tool. And part of what we came out with in that release was the fact that there are 17 countries in the world 
that actually represent a quarter of the world's population, a quarter of humanity, that are in areas that are facing extremely high water stress. Well, what does that mean? That means that 80 to 100 percent of the water that's available, the water supply that's available, is already in use. It's already being used to generate electricity for household purposes, to run industries, uh, to grow food. And the challenge with that, of course, is that as we grow more, or as we start to see impacts from climate change or a drought, we're much too close to the edge, uh, much too close to the margin of already using all the water we have. And that's the spotlight we were trying to shine on the issue. I, I want to go more into the nature of those risks. But first, I want to give you a chance to tell us about some of the new insights from this tool. You've got the new headline numbers. You work with communications people like me. We tell you, give us the headline. But there were some new things like groundwater information. Yes, um, yes. Tell us about that and why that matters. Yeah, so um, what's exciting th about this version of Aqueduct is that for the first time ever, we're able to take a comprehensive look at surface water and groundwater. Groundwater data is very difficult to get, but the uh, organization that we worked with at University of Utrecht has a really good modeling system, essentially, and was able to couple that model for where groundwater is how much is being replenished versus how much is being withdrawn, and to couple that with information about surface water. So we're getting a much fuller picture in places all over the world now of how much water is available relative to how much is being used. So well, could I look at this tool and say, okay, I'm thinking about moving to Karachi, <laughs> a troubled city in the south of Pakistan. I could zoom in on Karachi and what would I find? Well, so you would look at 13, you'd be able to look at 13 different indicators of water-related risks. So that surface and groundwater use versus uh, demand versus supply. You'd be able to look at the historic occurrence of droughts, of different types of floods, both river floods and coastal floods. In some cities you get both, so that's important. You'd be able to look at what is the difference month by month in when water is available, so seasonal variability. And for a lot of our indicators now, another big improvement is that we have monthly data, not just annualized data. That's very important when you're thinking about growing crops or for certain kinds of industrial development, you know, when you need a particularly high amount of water, let's say. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of these different kinds of indicators. We have a couple water quality indicators and so on that we look at to give you a, a multi-layered, which is important, picture of what's happening with water. Important to say, though, I'm glad you gave that example. This is intended as a high-level screening and planning tool. It is not intended to say, we're going to put a facility in this spot or I'm going to move to this neighborhood. You need a lot more very local information to make those kinds of decisions. But this is a first order screening tool that's extremely important, in part because it provides information in places in the world where there isn't good information, and it gives you good, comparable, credible information across all places in the world. Talk to me about India. Before the show, we were looking at the list of the 17 most water-stressed countries. India is smack dab in the middle in terms of the level of stress overall at number 13, but it's a bigger place, right? India is huge. India has three times the population of all the other 16 countries combined on that list, just to give you a sense of how big they are. Really, water and water crises, water scarcity, water quality issues, all of those are an existential question for India right now. Uh, they released a report, the government did earlier um, this summer, saying exactly that saying that water was going to be either India's future or its undoing. They were as stark as they could be. And in fact, they referenced some of our aqueduct information in that report from the National Planning uh, Agency, 
within the government. So they're well aware of this challenge. Uh, it's very difficult because India is naturally arid in much of the country, not all the country. There are parts of India, just like in the U.S., that are very water-rich. But it has a very large population, a very rapidly growing economy. Uh, it's uh, helped to feed itself by uh, doing irrigation and providing a lot of free pumps to irrigate farms uh, to farmers. But that's caused a lot of overpumping of groundwater with sort of no end in sight on that. And so there's some real challenges that India has to get its hands around in order to be able to manage its future. You were mentioning before we started recording about the subnational variability, which is one of the strengths of the tool. Can you talk to us about one of the areas in India that is particularly stressed in terms of water? Well, one that will jump to mind that a lot of people have heard about is the area in Tamil Nadu around Chennai, the city of Chennai. So Chennai actually had its uh, you know, ground zero moment where its reservoirs were down to zero. The government was having to bring water in on tanker trains uh, and in tanker trucks. People were standing in line for the better part of a day, uh, not able to go to their jobs, not able to run their small businesses, just to have enough water to manage in their households to survive. So it's been a very, very serious issue. Poor monsoons over the last couple of years, late monsoons this year, and frankly also mismanagement both of how water was being allocated and used, but also very importantly of the natural ecosystems, the natural infrastructure, the lakes and streams and watersheds that capture rainwater infiltrated into the ground that had been rapidly built on that really took away a lot of the you know former water supply. All of those factors came together as a sort of perfect storm. But it is by far not the only city or area in India that's going to be experiencing that. Many cities actually face similar threats in the future. You mentioned management. Maybe this is a good time. We've got everybody good and scared right now. There is a uh, an upside to this. And in, uh, I think it began as a blog post. It's now also produced as a, an article available in download in, in PDF. 17 countries home to one quarter of the world's population face extremely high water stress. But you end with three solutions. Of course, there are many more, but maybe you chose these three, I think, because they're probably among the most important. The first is about increasing agricultural efficiency, something presumably pretty important to India, but to a lot of other parts of the world. It is, and I've sort of already made the point that um, the Indian government over decades ago provided free pumps to allow farmers to draw groundwater to irrigate Not their just fields. free pumps, but free electricity, I understand, Free electricity, right? too. All the more important, actually. So it's, you know, there's no, there's no reason not to just pump as much water as you can. Maybe you'll grow more crops if, if you do that. Um, that's turned out to be a really serious problem, right? Um, Have they been able to unwind that? I know it's politically really difficult. It is politically really difficult to do that. Um, and here's an interesting way that they have. It's a relatively small uh, project and approach, but it's actually now growing, which is to also give solar panels to farmers so that they're using solar power instead of diesel or electric power off the grid to run those pumps. But interestingly, what they're really doing is trying to get farmers to farm solar energy. So they don't overuse the solar energy to overpump groundwater. Instead, they're selling the solar energy back to microgrids on contract bases as, as part of consortia of local growers. So they're not just farming produce that they're planting in the fields, they're farming solar energy. So it's sort of trying to unwind a problem that the government so, created. So they've introduced an opportunity cost to the pumping. 
right? If I pump less, I can sell more power. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, what what also can happen is that there are cost share programs and other approaches that can be used to get farmers to use more efficient irrigation systems, not flood irrigation. A lot of that water ends up evaporating into the sky. And also getting farmers to plant different crops. So planting lentils and other less water demanding crops, but that are still valuable in the marketplace, important for food security and, and so on. So farmers respond to whatever the price signal is, what the market signal is coming to them. If you give them cheaper inputs and a good market for selling what they're growing, they'll respond. So there are things that the government can do in that regard to sort of shift how much water is going to agricultural production or how to make it more efficient, I guess. You, you mentioned drip irrigation, and some of our listeners will be familiar with the um, Israel water story, quite famous for drip. Are there examples of other countries that uh, maybe where the state doesn't have as much capacity, shall we say, uh, that have been successful in modifying their agriculture to make it less water intensive? You know, it's a really good question. Not a lot. Um, Australia is another, you know, very developed, wealthy country that would be a good example of using drip irrigation. Um, and Israel's taking a lot of that technology and trying to export it to other water-stressed areas around Africa, Asia, and so on. There are places in China where they're starting to experiment with drip irrigation, um, but it's, it's not getting the level of uptake that it should yet. Um, your second uh, solution is investing in gray and green infrastructure. Gray, of course, being the cement and the green being the plants. But tell us more what that means when we say gray and green infrastructure for water. Yeah, I think we tend not to realize how much we rely upon forested watersheds on small streams, wetlands, and so on as the, the water source supply and also the filtration system for our watersheds. Uh, for our water supplies, I should say. In the U.S., for example, more than 50% of our drinking water comes from forested areas, from natural forests and from private forest lands. Not something that's well understood. You could argue that's their primary value, actually. Not trees, not recreation, not anything else. If you actually monetized it, that would probably be true. That's true the world over. And we're losing that infrastructure. It's being developed. It's being degraded. But we can go back in, in many instances, and improve it. First of all, protect it, but restore it where that's necessary. So one example would be around Sao Paulo, which has experienced some very tough droughts in recent years. Biggest city years. in Brazil, for those who don't know. Biggest city in the uh, Western Hemisphere, I believe, 20 million people. I think you're right. I yeah. think it is, yeah. We did some analysis to show what the return on investment was to the water utility just from the point of view of water filtration, of improving water quality so that they didn't have to use expensive filtration at the end of the, at the, at the plant where they're taking the water in to then uh, distribute it. Uh, what that value was for investing in 4,000 acres of upstream source watershed for doing restoration work. And the return on investment was like 28%. It's the kind of numbers that make anybody at a water utility sit up and take notice. So that's the sort of value of, I mean, literally the value, economic value embedded in green infrastructure. And we need to do a lot more to bring together the gray infrastructure, which we still need, with better investments in green infrastructure. Your third solution, treat, reuse, and recycle. Right. We're all going to be drinking sewage, right? Basically. <laughs> Well, those of us in Washington, D.C. We're already. Already are. We're not drinking it. Those are being used for irrigation, right? No, no, of course we're drinking. We're drinking all the upstream communities on the Potomac. We're drinking their sewage. 
Uh-huh. We're I was thinking about what's sewage. coming out of the Blue Plains plant. That's that's probably cleaner than what's coming down the river, isn't it? Well, I mean, probably. Blue Plains is a good plant, uh, one of the largest in the world. But no, all the communities upstream along the Potomac, right, that are withdrawing Potomac River, using it, sending it to their, you know, people's houses. They're washing their dishes with it. They're flushing their toilets. It's then going back through the treatment plant and being re-discharged into the Potomac upstream of where we're taking it into our drinking water treatment plant. So we're already drinking treated sewage. We already are drinking treated sewage. We just don't think of it that way. And that's true, presumably, for most of the people in the world who are getting, for everybody who's getting their water from a river, unless they live at the, what do you call that, the source of the river. Yeah, yeah, Uh exactly. So, you know, we have that sort of ick factor associated with it, but it's already happening. We just don't think about it that way. And of course, we have to do it the right way, and there have to be the right safeguards. I mean, Singapore is a great example of this, right? They've created, they have a lot of water-related risks. They don't have a lot of natural water resources. They import 40% of their water from Malaysia. Malaysia turns off those taps during drought because they take care of their own needs first. Singapore has felt very vulnerable from that. So they've put together a variety of different strategies, one of which is what they call new water, which is just recycled wastewater. And they did a brilliant thing, which is that once they started to develop that plan and build the plant, they did school group tours. And they got every kid in the country to drink a cup, you know, cup of it at the end. And <laughs> this is a place was... that banned chewing gum. So you th- you're going to tell the kid you're going to drink right. the water, the kid will drink the water. Exactly. But... And then the kid goes home and talks to the parents about, you know, so you get people sort of inculcated in the idea that this is, you know, not only just fine, but it's actually really smart, which in fact it is. We recycle all kinds of other goods. We treat water in a different way. We take it from one source. We treat it. We distribute it. Then we treat it again to some degree. Hopefully 80% of wastewater in the world, by the way, is not treated at all. So that's a frightening thought. And then we send it far away. And why would we do that? Why not create closer closed loop systems? It's far cheaper. There's an enormous amount of of energy embedded in that kind of pumping. I was going to say, talk to me about sludge to energy, one of my favorite things that you guys lead. So there is a huge amount of energy biogas energy that you can create out of sewage. This is like not dinnertime conversation, but it's It's okay. We're not eating. That's right. We're not eating. But it's really, really powerful. There is, in fact, more energy potential in wastewater than is the energy required to treat it. In other words, if you captured all that and you took that methane, you get lots of little bugs that eat the sewage in these big, you know, containers, um, and they release methane gas. If you capture that, you can run the treatment plant. You can sell power back to the grid. That's exactly what DC Water is doing right now. They used to be Pepco's largest electricity uh, customer, and they've now essentially gone off the grid. Then you can bring in other organic waste streams to that as well. You can sell compressed natural gas to restaurants to use. You can run vehicles off of it. China's doing this in a massive way right now. And if we did it in every city in China, it would obviate something like 4% of total methane releases from China, which might not sound like a lot, but methane is a very powerful, very potent greenhouse gas. And if you could knock off 4% of methane globally, it would do a lot to help us deal with uh, climate change. It's very exciting. I feel like you're a little modest here in that it's happening in China in part because of work that your team did and our colleagues in China in writing this up, explaining how it worked, and then, correct me if I'm wrong, inviting Chinese 
water plant managers to come here and tour the Blue Plains plant. No, you're absolutely right. It's It was one of my favorite memories, actually, the, the gentleman who's now retired but who was heading up the ministry that was responsible for designing wastewater treatment plants around the country and was uh, did some of the early work in China, watching him ask questions of, he, he acted as if his English was not that good, and then we got to the Blue Plains treatment plant, and he was asking all these very good questions in English, and he really had all the engineers there on their toes because he knew exactly what to ask. And coming out of that study tour, we had folks from Beijing and three other major cities in China. They came away realizing, oh, we can do this too. Because what Blue Plains did was they actually retrofit these systems onto their existing property. It wasn't like you had to go build a new treatment plant. They're, they're very manageable. They, their return is like within two or three years, they pay for themselves. And the energy savings is enormous. That's such an inspirational um, story. And in a world where we need solutions, it's, uh, it's a great note um, to end on. Um, I want to close by asking you if you have a parting thought for our listeners about water? Yeah, I guess I would say that it's this. We, we all take it for granted. It, we need it for everything that we do. It's sort of hidden to us in many cases, in many instances. And at the end of the day, it requires government to really step up and manage our water resources well. And sadly, even what we're seeing in this country, and it's true the world over, is that we're sliding backwards. So the 40 plus years of really important legislation and regulatory structures that were in place to protect clean water, for example, have now been eroded. And we're gonna see in this country, in the US, we're gonna see the impacts of that. We need to go back to where we were and we need to help a lot of other countries get there too. Thank you so much. I always learn when I talk to you. It's always Thank so you, fun. Thank you, Lawrence. I enjoyed it. This has been the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. My guest today is Betsy Otto. She's WRI's Global Director for Water. We've been talking about the immense challenges that the world faces in terms of water risk and also the abundance of solutions. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you'll tune in to our next podcast. WRI podcast is available on Stitcher, iTunes, and other places that find podcasts are given away. Until next time, thanks for listening.